like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Now, in this episode, I will be examining a part of the novel now called Lies, Inc. In the previous episode, I talked about the complicated publication history of Lies, Inc., how it went through different manifestations, starting as a novella called The Unteleported Man, and how Dick wrote extra material for it that was not really wanted, and he had to set it aside, and then how it later got reintroduced in a very clumsy way, and how Dick tried to reconnect it, but then before, you know, he died before he could finally finish the, the, the final revisions of, of the total novel, Lies, Inc. The result of this is we end up with two very different stories being told within the same volume, loosely connected together. And there are times you really feel that you're in a, in a separate novel. So in the previous episode, I talked about that. And then I looked at the, the section of the book that has the core story, the story that is revealed in The Unteleported Man. And it's still there as the mainline story in Lies, Inc. That doesn't change that much. It's the story of, of two groups, one, two allied groups, one Rocknell Van Applebaum, who wants to take a ship to the colony of Planet Whalesmouth. It'll take 18 years to get there and 18 years back. He wants to find out the truth of what's going on on that planet and maybe revive his family's business by bringing people on a return voyage. Lies, Inc., uh, basically an uh, information-collecting quasi-military force on Earth that's also under pressure. Their business is also being challenged by the rise of a new conglomeration called Trails of Hoffman Limited, because they control immigration through the control of the teleport device, which allows people to, to migrate instantly to Whale's Mouth. Unfortunately, they claim it's a one-way trip, so no one really knows what's there in Whale's Mouth except the propaganda they get. So, um, while Lies, Inc. hatches a plan to send over a large contingent of forces through uh, through the teleport device in order to take over Whale's Mouth, while Rockbell Ben Applebaum travels uh, slowly through 18 years. Both plans go awry. Rockmill Ben Applebaum is intercepted by the UN and captured. And we find out that the UN is also an enemy of Trails of Hoffman Limited, and they agree to help Rockmill Ben Applebaum save an employee of Lies Inc. that he's quickly fallen in love with, Freya Holm. Meanwhile, the Lies Inc. scheme of sending over a large contingent of forces is failed because of what they find on the other side is not a peaceful idyllic frontier, not even a Nazi concentration camp where people are instantly uh, poofed out of existence, which is what we were led to believe in the early part of the novel. Instead, what we find is a Stalinistic gulag forced labor camp system and a military state where everyone is basically serfs of, of the state. Uh, the mission to send over this army of lives and workers fails, but nevertheless, they're able to get the information back that Wales Mouth is a colonial tyranny, emigration stops, and there's now an opportunity to 
to create a better, more promising frontier. But that story is not told. That story is is perhaps in another another volume or in Dick's mind. Who knows? Dick often does that, where he'll stop a story right at the moment where a system is under the brink of collapse. For I mean, this is, I think, a, a good thing that contrasts Philip K. Dick with writers like Orwell, who in 1984 talks about kind of power as eternal, unending, really not he can't be confronted. Dick's power structures are always contested. They're almost always falling apart by the end of the novel. He doesn't tell us what replaces them. It really is up to the imagination of the reader to, to posit possible futures. But the eternal, endless power, he gets to that a little bit in a few works. I think Faith of Our Fathers has a bit, a bit of that. The Maze of Death has this kind of eternal return idea. But by and large, Dick is fairly optimistic about the power of people to challenge political uh, power and challenge the lies. And that's what we, we have at the climax of, of Lies, Inc. Now, what about this added material? Well, it's placed between chapters 8 and chapters 15, um, about halfway through chapter 8, and about it starts in about halfway ch through chapter 15. It stops, the core added material. I think there's a few scenes within there that may have been spliced in, but I, have a, I don't have a copy of The Unteleported Man to go with because there are characters who are carrying on the mainline story from time to time in, in the midst of that. So, but the bulk of it is added there. It mostly surrounds Rockmel Ben Applebaum's experiences when he gets to Whalesmouth after going through the teleportation device. And it centers on the fact that it seems that people who go through this experience have experienced uh, distinct and worlds of their own that are, that are distinct and individualized to them, right? So everyone kind of has their own world and they can report on seeing different things and different creatures. In this way, it's very much like Faith of Our Fathers. If you remember that short story where people take a drug, actually we haven't, um, haven't uploaded that episode yet. It, it was written a little bit later, but in that, in that novel, people who take a drug, they stop seeing uh, like the president on the television, start seeing, I think it's 12, different distinct creatures. Now, different people will see different creatures. Later on, you learn that the drug they take is actually an anti-hallucinogen. So whatever that they've, whenever they see the president, they're actually hallucinating a collective delusion, right? This drug they take neutralizes that, and then people see the reality, but the reality is not static. The reality is 12 different monsters. The president is 12 different monsters. And the question is, what's the real one look like? And they hatch a plan to get the main character to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the leader while taking this anti-hallucinogen. And then hopefully he'll report back what, what they see. You get a lot of that feel in this central part of Lies, Inc. So Rockmel Ben Applebaum sees a group of people, a group of other people who are basically in a sort of mental asylum because they haven't been able to agree upon a true reality. When enough of within that group can report on the same reality, then that gets kind of codified as an official quote-unquote para-world, is what they're being called. They, it can be defined, and then they can, they can leave. So that's what they're after, is some kind of agreed-upon delusion. They don't, you know, the, the individualized delusion is bad, the total solipsistic one. But to have a, a one that can be shared by others to be confirmed, it can become an official para-world. And then that allows people to kind of filter out of this, this asylum. And this is 
all just that stuck in the middle of the novel and it's all really bizarre and weird and I'll try to talk about it as best I can but it, it's going to be rather difficult but one part that's added is a new chapter one and I think it's important to to set up chapter one <clears throat> what happens in chapter one is an employee at Lies Inc someone who runs sub info com com um, computers and what these seem to do is send trans transmissions to people which then manifest as dreams that they have. And so one thing that Lies Inc. can do in addition to collecting material is that they can influence people's thoughts through their dreams by implanting ideas into them. And in this case, the information that's sent to, to none other than Rockmel Ben Applebaum, our, our, our hero, is it's a mistake, but it's, it's about rats. And then he starts having a rat dream. And then so we jump to Rockmel who has, has a rat dream. It's important to that Dick establishes this here because what he's saying here is that individualized uh, worlds are possible through our dreams anyways, right? We're, when we're dreaming, we're in a world that no one else shares, right? And weird things can happen and bizarre things can happen. But in this particular world, that can be induced and influenced. So it's not trustworthy, right? Just because you dream it certainly doesn't mean it's real, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's your own either. And that's the troubling thing we have. So there's a couple of points in the, in the novel where Rockmill by Applebaum has these rat dreams, dreams where he's talking to a rat or he is a rat. And um, so what happens in this dream? Well, in both of his rat dreams and experiences, he dreams he's a rat and he has a friend rat named Fred and they fight over food and garbage. And he has this, like when he wakes up, he has this craving for eating garbage. Quote, in his dream, he kept a secret hoard of valuables which others in the settlement knew nothing about. He thought of them now, those precious artifacts which he cherished, cherished, which he had gone to such lengths and effort to acquire. Mostly food, of course. Nothing was more important than food. And yet, you could sometimes find a string. He had lots of string, fine brown string. He had wound it up in a heap, and during the day, he slept in the midst of it. The pile of string comforted him. It lulled him and made his dreams peaceful. All at once, there in the settlement, asleep during the day in the pile of strings, he had one dreadful dream which kept coming back. It had to do with a huge fish open in its wide mouth. Its vast, ugly teeth strove to crunch him, crunch him with avid relish. Geez, Rockmel said, maybe I'm not here shaving. Maybe I'm just dreaming this all. Maybe I'm asleep in my pile of string and having a good dream, not a bad one, while the dream where I'm, uh, he thought, a man. And quote. So we have the Zhuangzi here, obviously, if, if it's uh, the famous Chinese philosopher, the uh, Zhuangzi, Taoist philosopher, the first... Uh, major Taoist writer after after Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu is not probably not even a real person. So Zhuangzi is the first like historical Taoist philosopher we have access to, and he made the famous uh, thought experiment. Uh, do am I a? Is it, I think it's a bird. Maybe he's like, am I a bird or do I just dream I'm a bird? Right, and then or am I a bird that's dreaming I'm a man half the time? And how at any one moment you can't really clarify that, right? Because when you're in a dream, you often don't know you're in a dream, right? You think that's really happening to you. So there's no way of really then establishing that our real life is the real one. Now this theme is, is made political at the end of the chapter, and this is the end of the original, or the, the new chapter one. Of course, in the original, uh, Unteleported Man. And Rockmill thinks there's an anatomical explanation. It has to do with the accretional layers of the brain. The brain has old layers which come to wakefulness during normal sleep. 
That's the trouble with living in a police state, he said to himself. You think, you imagine the police are behind everything. You get paranoid and think they're beaming information to you in your sleep to subliminally control you. Actually, the police wouldn't do that. The police are our friends. Or was that the idea beamed to me subliminally? He wondered suddenly. The police are our friends. The hell they are. End quote. So we, we're given a, a narrative of kind of rootlessness of, of not really knowing where we're at and not and, and ambiguity about what's real and it's at that point that we jump into our main the main narrative of the unteleported man which is a pretty conventional story yeah it's a police state yeah there's a to, there's elements of totalitarianism the germans have basically rose to dominance in the world system and and seem to be re returning to their fascist ways well that's proven not to be really the case by the end of the novel <clears throat> But we got a story really about the frontier and overpopulation and, and how we manage it. And this, this neat little question, like when you have a one-way teleport device, you can't get information back. How do you really know what's going on on the, on the frontier except entrusting what the government says? So then we got this quest. Let's go over there. We'll, we'll go the old-fashioned way. We'll take 18 years to get there, and we'll find out the truth that way. And that, that's the story we're, we're, we're given. But with this rewrite, there's this new chapter one which is all about the nature of reality and how we really can't, can't get at it. And that's, that's what this added material really begins to talk about. So we almost have two different novels here. A novel about the frontier, about uh, Nazism and, and new manifestations of Nazism, the, prep, the continuation of, of fascism. Okay, so then we, we jump ahead to chapter 8 to talk about this, this added material. It begins in the vintage edition that I have. I don't know about the Mariner edition. I know most, I think all of these books have been republished by Mariner in recent years, but I still have some of these older vintage, the ones with these, these kind of ugly covers. A lot of them are really bad. This is one of them. It's just a blue guy with, with you know, a bald, blue bald guy. Looks like a statue on the cover. Just his head. There's kind of a blue world talked about as one of the, the bad realities that one can experience after they get to Whale's Mouth. But I don't know if that's what they're trying to do. But anyways, it, it begins on page 73, and it runs pretty much to... Uh, let's see here. Somewhere in chapter 15. So yeah, to page one, 173. So it's about 100 pages. About half of, half of the book is just added added material. Actually, a little bit more if you include chapter one. Um, I'm not going to talk about all of it because some of it has to do more with uh, the UN plot and, and the inventor of Telpor and efforts to maybe go back and some things with time travel. It's all mixed up. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a big mess. and it, it, Too bad it couldn't have been cleaned up a little bit more and, and maybe just edited down. I, I think it doesn't I don't know. It, it's, it's problematic to say the least. But I, I do want to talk about it just in the hopes of being complete so it starts out with the lines acrid smoke billowed around him stinging his nostrils he bent in a half reflective crouch then here on the far side of the ninth planet of Fulmulot, Rockbell bent Applebaum fingered relentlessly the meager flat tin the container of his trouser pocket his was the weep x that the advanced weapons archives had provided him radically disguised as well as radically bent anything in the stand standard arsenals of the UN so this tells us that we are, this stuff is taking place at the end of the novel. So it's still not clear to me why it wasn't just added to the end to be kind of a coda adventure, an explanation of what happens to Rockmill after he landed. I think it would have been a 
almost a better novel because it wouldn't have confused you halfway through. You don't need the 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 incongruity here. Uh, you can because you have it explained why Rockmill decides to use the teleport device, the situation at Wellsmouth, and that happened, and then you know a lot has already been explained to us, and it just becomes a bizarre kind of ending to it. It this is not the only time we've seen this. We saw, of course, Doctor Blood Money, where Chapter Four is apparently misplaced. Chapter Four should be like Chapter Six or Seven, and that could have just been a publishing error, but it was never fixed. And you know, Dick has gotten away with all this weirdness that I think sometimes just straight up proper editing and storytelling has been has been sacrificed. Or maybe it's just science fiction publishing in those days wasn't wasn't as careful about this stuff. But it's it is unfortunate. I think it, it makes the novel weaker than it, it could have been. I guess you can kind of just say it's a Quentin Tarantino kind of thing, right? Where he's telling the story out of order. But there's no reason to do that. You know, sometimes there's good reason to do it and but here, here it's not. It's just confusing to you. But he's he's referring here to, to the UN weapons that he was given at the end of the at the end of the novel. So he's then attacked by by THL Trails of Hoffman Limited soldiers. So the the plan original plan was to go and Lies Inc would come with force and take it over because there'd just be like a homegrown militia. That, that's not the case. There's actually an armed military camp with plenty of soldiers by trails of owned by trails of Hoffman limited and they're able to shoot they shoot an LSD dart at, at rock mill leading him into a bizarre drug induced trippiness color rock mill thought this is a quote color rock mill thought he saw the transformation in the THL soldier's face the color transformation it had already set in swiftly the drug moved him to ruin in his bloodstream it rushed him towards the end of his existence in the shared world. For me, he knew it, but he could not even think of it, carry out the steps of his logical thought. Awareness was there, knowledge of what was happening. He watched the lips of the THL soldier become bright, phosphorescent, shiny, pink, pure luminosity, the lips forming a perfect bow, then floating off, detached themselves from the soldier's face, leaving behind them ordinary colorless lips. One hemisphere of Rockmill's brain had received the LSD and succumbed undoubtedly, undoubtedly the right his being right-handed, the hemisphere on the other side being the undifferentiated of the two. Um, and this is how we, this is when he enters into into his drug-induced fantasy world, uh, very much like the kind of stuff we saw in Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. And then by the end of chapter eight, he he apparently experiences this for centuries. He talks about being in this world for five centuries. He's able to have some conversation with the soldiers, but then he starts seeing this monster, this huge aquatic creature appears at the end. And this is this description he's able to have of going to be able to remember of this is going to help him when he talks to other people identify the type of world he got to. And this is going to be called like the world blue or the world with the aquatic thing, the aquatic creature. It's kind of Lovecraftian, actually, uh, these descriptions, just like faith of our fathers. You have these Lovecraftian images of these uh, external malevolent uh, forces, monsters, aliens, right? Quote, this thing's ocean face, its presence at the far end of the tube in the outer opening where I'm not, that isn't a hallucinating event inside me. It's here for a reason. It drips and wades itself through a glued together folds and stares without winking at me and wants to keep me dead, get me from ever getting back. Not my friend, he thought, or rather 
new. It was an idea. It was a concrete piece of observed real outside, reality outside. When he looked at the thing, he saw this fact as part of it. The non-friend attribute came along inseparably. The thing oozed. It oozed and hated him. Hated him with an absolute contempt in its over-splattering liquid eyes. It perceived its derision. Not only did it not like him, it did not respect him. He wondered why. My God, he realized. It must know something about me. Probably it has seen me before, even though I haven't seen it. He knew then what this meant. It had been here all this time. End quote. So this is... Um, his experience, and it seems there's a separate LSD-induced experiences, but then there's actually this reality behind it, which is, in Rockmill's view, real, right? And we're never going to really know where we are in this section of the novel, unfortunately, especially when we're following the character of, of Rockmill. So then in the next chapter, Rockmill awakens from this apparent delusion, but it seems to be just another one that they're in. He's in a, what's called, just called a, a pleasant living room with some other people. And, you know, he's kind of refreshed because the scenery is, is rather nice. It's clean. It's got fresh air. It's kind of the idyllic fantasy that Walesmouth has been portrayed to be by the propaganda by Omar Jones and the others who have been boosting uh, emigration to, to Walesmouth. They tell him, though, that, that this is all false. It, it's... It's not real air. It's all delusion. This is the most, quote, the one of the women, a blonde curly haired youth, said, well, this is the most particularly important summation he's making. And after all, he's our elected president. We owe him our undivided attention, every one of us. Right? So this is part of their, their they're, in, they're in a new false world, the false world constructed by, by Omar, Omar Jones. And so he's with this group of people, and they're all kind of forced to just talk about where they're at and Rockmill's able to get a lot of information from them about the odd situation that they're in together. His, need, his impression though is that Walesmouth is kind of nice. He mentions how there's not the autofacts, it's not the industrial hell that Earth has become, it's not crammed, quote, no editor, creditor jet balloons. Instinctively he searched for a sign of one, flapples cranked back and forth in an eccentric fashion. This much was familiar. And of the red runnel crowds roam busily, fragmenting at junctions and streaming beyond the range of its vision intent on their errands. Life in motion, activity of a dedicated, almost obsessive seriousness. The momentum of the city told him that he had, what he had seen before had not popped obligingly into existence in response to his scrutiny. Life here had gone on for a long time before him. There was too much of it and far too much kinetic force to be explained away as a projection of his own psyche. So he starts to think that this is a, a, a reality of, of source, what he sees, not the delusion he saw before. He, he thinks through the events of, of what happened before, how the Lies, Inc. scheme failed, how he's not really able to find Freya. Even with UN assistance, Whale's Mouth was able to protect itself and hold off of this invasion that all the other plans that the UN was engaged in, whether it was neutralizing Seth von Eyman, the inventor of Telpor, all these other things have failed. The only good news would be that the truth had gotten out there to, to Terra. So again, this, this is all on page 86 and 87. These are all events that are best fit at the end of the novel when you, after you read it. So I almost recommend just reading this section at the end if, if you pick up this novel for yourself. I don't know. If you had a different experience reading this, if this worked for you, let me know. I'd, I'd love to talk about it. But if you just pick a, you know, if you're just reading along and suddenly you're, you're in Whale's Mouth, you don't know why. You don't 
know anything about this UN plan. You, you, you often have, you actually have good reason to think the UN is working with Charles of Hoffman Limited at this point in the novel, because that's sort of what Lies Inc. is thinking. Um, but there it is. There's something really connectivity-wise missing here. So after he gets his bearing and, and, and meets these people, like one is, there's, there's a woman named Sheila Kwam. There's uh, one called Gretchen Boardman. There's a man named Hank Xantho. These are the main characters who are there. They're kind of living together. And they, what they end up talking about and revealing to him is that they all are existing in various, what they call para worlds. And that Rockmill had experienced one of the para worlds, not the LSD experience, which seems to have been just a straight up drug trip. But when he saw beyond the, the drug trip and he saw something that he, he knew was not of from the LSD, but something that's sort of real, that's the parallel parallel he's experienced. And that's what's out there for him. Right now, of course, there's kind of the Omer Jones garrison, created garrison state, the, the quote unquote reality of whale's mouth. On top of that, I guess, that's also an artificial construction, but beyond that, there are these parallels that these people experience, but they all experience them subjectively and they have different ones. They can just report on it and they're able to categorize and document it, but it's not until two people share one delusion that it gets written down as kind of a, a reality, a formal para-world. Now, there seems to be another force here, and these are called the, Maz, the Mazdasts. M-A-Z-D-A-S-T-S, the Mazdas. And these seem to be the indigenous people of Whalemouth and that they seem to have a role in creating these para worlds for people. Now, Hank Santo, he's the most cynical of, of the men, of the people that he meets at the other end of, of his journey to Whalesmouth. And uh, just to give you a taste of, of his point of view, our control, Hank Xantho said, with a sardonic sentiment, sentimentality, then a wink to Rockmill. Yes, we have that too. Let's see, Applebaum. Your para world, the one, the Mazdas, if they exist, allegedly programmed for you. All this, of course, took place during teleportation while you were demolecularized. Is listed code-wise by the authorities here at the aquatic horse-shaped version. Damn rare. Reserved, I suppose, for people who cut up their maternal grandmothers in the former life and fed them to the family cat. He beamed at Rockmill, showing huge gold-capped teeth, which in a churning froth of excitement induced by the lysiric acid in his brain metabolism. Rockmill experienced as a display of revolting enormity, a disfigurement that made him clutch his cup of Sinkoff and shut his eyes. The gold-capped teeth triggered off spasm after spasm within him, motion sickness to degree he had never considered possible. It was recognizable but enlarged to the magnitude of a terminal convulsion. He hung on the table, hunched over, waiting for the waves of hyperstalysis to abate. No one spoke. In the darkness of his unlit private hellscape, he writhed and fought, coped as best as he could with the random somatic abominations, unable to even begin to speculate on the meaning of what had been said. And that's kind of where we're at in this novel. We don't know where we're at. The characters don't know where, we're, where they're at. It's, it's super bizarre. And as their conversation moves on, they, he learns a little bit more about him. For instance, there's, uh, they have this great fear that you know, one of these worlds will be, be defined by two people. If two people report the same experience, that, that it can sort of become real then. And that's because these are, worlds are so horrible, especially rock metals, which is called the aquatic world or like the aquatic blue world or the world with the aquatic creature. 
you know, this is the one that everyone fears and, and everyone's horrified by. But there's others that are just as bad or seem really bad, like the clock is one. Again, this really reminds me of the story of the faith of our fathers, where there's these kind of set, a set of different realities that people can, can experience based on what? I don't know. Is it just random or, or whatever? But it's, it feels a lot like that. These, they're probably written around similar time periods. Now, the section meets, becomes the most bizarre, I think, in chapter 12 and, and 13, where he meets this eye-eating creature. Again, he's kind of in a peril world, and he kind of flips out of it. Now, sometimes the creatures he talks to, they'll say they're like Gretchen or, or these other guys. So it seems it's, it's a delusional representation of these other people. But one he sees is this eye-eater, a creature who's able to exist in, in some kind of eternity by eating his own eyes and regrowing his eyes. Quote, there was an undoubtedly a number of techniques which it could make use of when pressed. This act of consuming its own sensory apparatus, it appeared to be a reflex act, not even consciously done. By now the mere habit, the creature chewed monotonously and the luster within the still watching half-consumed eyes was extinguished. But already the new ones were expanding in clusters against the outer surfaces of the head had begun to acquire animation. Several more advanced in development than the others had in their dim way discovered them, and they were each passing second became more alert. Their initial interchange with reality involved him, and the realization of this made him sick with disgust, to be the first object sighted by the semi-autonomous entities. It's weird. I mean, the, the idea of like a disconnect between your eyes and consuming one eyes. We saw this a little bit in the Palmer Eldridge, where that's, that's the metaphor for alienation. Three stigmata, Palmer Eldridge, the eyes. No, the eyes was blurred reality, right? It's something with your eyes, eating your eyes or replacing your eyes with a mechanism as a symbol for blurred reality. Right? I guess it was a robotic arm was alienation. Now, this thing, this creature gives him this book. This book is supposed to have his all the answers to his questions about whale's mouth, something, I guess, the truth. And it, it, it's presented as a, a document of truth. And it's, it's called The True and Complete Economic and Political History of New Colonized Land. So this is the story of whale's mouth that no one on Earth has access to, but it's been written down. And this weird creature is giving him this, this book. And in the middle of this conversation, a creditor balloon comes by, which is something he referred to earlier as something that exists on Earth. Like creditors will actually hound you with these little devices, right? Like we've seen the ads do this before, like in the simulacrum, the little Google ads, they'll come into your ear and, you know, tell you about your erectile dysfunction or whatever and, and bother you until you crush them or, or give in and buy. Here they have these creditor balloons that will come and like harass you for paying your debts. And then one comes and starts harassing the creature, the eye-eating creature, and then turns and starts harassing Rockmill, who's also a, a creditor. And then Rockmill realizes that it's actually Mattston Glazer Holiday, or the eye-eater is actually Mattston Glazer Holiday, someone who had to come over, but, you know, apparently he died. So it's all mixed up. I, I really don't know what else to say about this section of the novel it's kind of fun to read and it's an experience it's it's interesting but it's not it's not easy to really make sense of it but what it is just to get right to it it's, it's dick having fun with 
with multiple realities with the experience of drugs. I, I have the feeling that he, he maybe took some drugs and you know, we, we know he used drugs occasionally. He wasn't a, I mean, he used a lot of amphetamines, but he once in a while would use other drugs as well. At least that's my understanding. Not very much though. I mean, I think it's a little over, uh, my understanding is it's a little bit overblown, this idea that he was always on drugs, except for, for speed, which he, he used to, to do his work. Um, maybe, but it was some kind of experience he, he had. And he thought it was interesting and wanted to talk about it, like, like timelessness and how people's kind of morph in and out. And, and you see people and you talk to them and they say, like, I'm Joe, but actually they appear to you to be some kind of weird creature. Right. And I, I'm sure he had at some point, I, he must have had an experience where two people taking drugs had a shared experience of some sort. Now, I don't know. That might be an easy explanation for why that might be. Like people are talking about oceans and they both take a drug and they both experience oceans in their, you know, in through their experience. You know, there's a reason for that. It, it's coming out of their conversation. It's not necessarily a shared delusion. On the, but we've seen this so much in the three stigmata of Homer Eldridge and now in this book that it, I, I have to believe it's something that Dick experienced. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I think if someone were to sit down with this and rearrange this, it would be an interesting, straightforward novel about the frontier and, and truth and how we know about the truth of this faraway world with this interesting scientific device of the one-way transport. And then it, in the end, it becomes kind of a psychedelic journey. I think that would have worked as a novel if it was arranged that way. I think the problem with this is it just, it's so disjointed and cobbled together and not in the most logical way. And I think that, that holds back the success of this novel. So I think that's all I'm going to say about Lysink. Um, and the unteleported man. I like the unteleported man stuff a lot. I, I love the the commentary on Thomas Malthus and population. I love the 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 the, the whole question that's asked here about the frontier. I, I love the Holocaust imagery, and I think this is one of Dick's best novels about the Holocaust and about that experience, especially when you have these characters walking down into this like, chamber. To be teleported and it's very much like going into a gas chamber and that is not accidental i mean it's it's referenced directly in the in other parts and you know dick was doing that very consciously and i, I like that aspect of it too so i think there's a lot to like in lies inc i even like the psychedelic stuff kind of as a separate thing doing it doing a separate thing it could have actually been a separate story he could have done this because a lot of writers have played with the idea of like the teleportation experience right and how it might be weird and that might just be what it is it's all a product of what people go through when they're teleported right it's it's you know people go through these weird experiences when they're teleported that's plausible i suppose uh, stephen king wrote a, a very good short story called the jaunt about how the teleportation device was created but it drives people who go through it insane so they found out that they're experiencing like endless time if they're awake during it but if you put them to sleep it's it's no problem and then one character you know figures out how to keep himself awake during this just to because he wants to experience it and then he ends up going crazy at, at, the, at the end basically they die in that story but the, the question is like what actually happens how do we experience the transport I don't know, even star trek has played with transporter 
experiences and, and, and all that. So it's, it's a cool idea. I like that. So it's just not constructed well. And it's the second of three novels I've looked at, which seem to have continuity errors that maybe could have been easily fixed, but they haven't been. And it's, it's too bad. So I guess that's it. That's all I'm going to say about Lies, Inc. And that, that completes the novels of, of 1965. Um, we'll have, we'll, in the next episode, I'll have one sh short story. Because I think he only published one story in 1965. And then we'll pick up with the novels of 1966. And I believe there's two of those. There'll be The Crack in Space, which I'll look at first. And then Now Wait for Last Year, one of my favorite of Dick's uh, 1960s novels. So with that, uh, I'm done with Lies, Inc. If you have your own feelings about this, if my complaints are, are too harsh, let me know. If you, have a, if you know of a way of kind of reordering or reconstructing this, this novel, let me know. If, if I'm missing anything important, please share that as well. Um, now, this, the comment section for Podbean used to be tied to Facebook, um, but now it's seems to be got its own thing so to make a comment on the episode directly you have to like register with with podbean unfortunately but uh, if you want to do that uh, you can but the best way to contact me is to is to send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com so i'll see you next time with a short story um, that short story is it's uh, retreat syndrome which is a interesting and, and rather good short story it connects in, in interesting ways with with precious artifacts, I think, doing some, some more stuff. So um, I have a lot to say about that story. So see you next time. If you